Let's, uh, let's pray and we'll get started with numbers. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. And uh, we do thank you for uh, the gifts of life that you have given us. We think of even just the gift of uh, mothers and um, the blessings there. We think of um, just the, the kindness that you show to all humanity in, in these common grace gifts. And especially for those that have uh, Christian mothers, we think of the um, special grace that comes through that as well. And so we're thankful for these gifts. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so book of Numbers. The plan is to finish Numbers today, right? So we, we have done well counting. You guys pass, right? Maybe. We'll see. We have a couple more numbers to cover. Um, all good things do need to come to an end. That's not really a precise statement, though, is it? Um, because the new heavens and new earth is not going to come to an end, right? So, And that's going to be a very good thing. Uh, but this side of heaven, good things do come to an end, at least temporarily. And so we're coming to the end of the book of Numbers. And, and while book of Numbers is probably not... Uh, as enjoyable as the eternal state will be for all of us. Um, It has, I trust, been good for our souls. And so we're going to um, look through this and we're going to summarize these last few chapters by looking back because that's what these chapters are doing. They, They start by looking back and learning some, some lessons that we can, we'll glean some lessons from that. Seeing God's faithfulness in spite of the people's unfaithfulness. And then looking ahead and we see this new generation, this faithful generation, and when I say faithful, really what I mean is trusting, not that they're perfect. Um, I mean that they are, God is faithful in the fact that he is trustworthy in everything he does. His people are faithful in that they trust him in who he is and everything he does, right? Um, so that's, that's what we're seeing, and we see that this generation is on the doorstep of the promised land. So let's look at Numbers 33. Uh, well, before we do that, let me just give you a minute. Is there anything that stands out or that you come to mind, it's fine if there's not, but just since you've, you've sat through all of numbers just about at this point, is there anything that stands out to you in terms of lessons learned, themes that come to mind that you've seen? Um, and we'll touch on some of those as we go through, so it's okay if you don't have any, but things that might have stuck out to you as we went through numbers. God takes care of his own. Yeah, we see God's faithfulness in taking care of his own people. Yeah, it's good. It's a pretty, pretty major theme in the book, I think. Yeah. Yeah. God's presence with the Israelites. The, yeah. The Ark of the Covenant. And yeah. The tabernacle. Yeah. So we see, we've seen God's presence. We saw a lot of that early on in terms of the focus, right? And that, that makes sense. That flows out of Leviticus and really even out of Exodus, right? Where God's, he's bringing them out for particular purposes to worship him and to have his presence among them. He gives them the law so they know how to be his nation and his people. Um, he gives them the tabernacle so that he will dwell among them. He gives them priests and Levites so that they can make sure that God's presence is there and not striking everyone dead, right? Because uh, if, if they don't distinguish between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the profane, um, that would be a problem in God's presence. Any, you appreciate greater appreciation of the dispensation that we live in. That's right. Yeah. 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 So as we, we see that this is uh, the old covenant, including what we see here in numbers, their shadows, which are very helpful and they, they were important for the Israelites. They're still important for us, but they were shadows. And so we're thankful that the substance, right? The reality has come in Christ and we're under a new covenant. We can be thankful to the Lord for that. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So he's faithful to his promises, even if at times we're unfaithful. Yeah. Yeah. Because you do, you see his faithfulness, you see the unfaithfulness often, right? Not trustingness of his people. 
and God is faithful. Now, he, he's faithful. We'll talk about this a little bit later if we get to it, but um, he's faithful to discipline. That's faithfulness too, isn't it? When he says there's going to be consequences, right? The way of the fool is hard. Um, and then, uh, and, but he's also faithful to maintain the promises of bringing them to his place and all these other things that he has made to them. So, yeah. I never put the representation mass for spirituality. And when you've been talking, it just strikes me how important you can track the miracle is to the plan of God and to spirituality and yeah. connection with Christ. There's a lot of mass <laughs> or mystic into yes, yeah. And I've never thought about that very much before, but it seems like God works through math. <laughs> yes. So even if you don't like math, you can be thankful for it. All right, well, let's, let's move through this section. Numbers 33, uh, the beginning section here, verses uh, 1 through 49, is looking back, lessons from the past. What you have in this section is a travel log of Israel's journey, and it really goes from um, partway through the book of Exodus, around the time uh, when they're being uh, freed through that first Passover, uh, through Leviticus, which remember most of Leviticus takes place in one area mostly, right? Uh, Maybe totally, I can't remember, but um, so Leviticus, and then through what we've already seen in Numbers. So let me read a few verses here. So what we're seeing then basically to summarize is from Egypt to the edge of the promised land. That's, That's what happens and it's being reviewed here. So chapter 33, verse one through four, these are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting places. They set out from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So what we see here is the the people have a um, a trip from Egypt to the edge of the promised land, and it was not a nonstop flight, right? This is not a nonstop flight. It ends up taking, I mean, if you keep reading, uh, it's, it goes for essentially 40 years, and Moses lists 40 different locations here. Uh, there, I think there are actually other locations. I think these are just the highlights he's giving, and 40 probably just partially intends to just correspond to a reminder of it was 40 years. I, don't, I, I think there probably are more spots that they stop, but you see there's at least 40 places. The point is you're supposed to see this is not a nonstop flight. It ends up being prolonged over 40 years. Now, we're not going to go over all these stops, um, but I want to point out a couple things of what we can learn from this section. The first thing I think we can learn is we see God's mighty hand rescuing his people. In other words, we're reminded of that. They're looking back, getting lessons for the present. So one of the things they can, they're supposed to take from this, and we should take from this, is God's mighty hand to rescue his people. So we just saw there in the section I just read, he redeems them from slavery, um, and they were slaves there for over 400 years in Egypt. Well, they were in Egypt for over 400 years. And it, he, he redeems them. He brings them out of enslavement. Think of the idea of redemption, right? He, he kind of buys them out, redeems them, takes them out of their slavery. And 
he does it, how does it say in verse three? Do they, yeah, there's this boldness, right? There's this triumphantness. Um, so we see that they go out triumphantly in the sight of the Egyptians. Um, the Egyptians had the power, right? The, the Egyptians were the masters. There, there was, Israel's not gonna get out of this on their own, right? They're not, the Egyptians aren't just gonna let them go. So what we see is the fact that God brings them out of Egypt puts God's power on display. And in fact, we, we're further reminded of that because it says he executed judgment on Egypt's gods, right? So all these plagues he unleashes relate to judgments on the gods, so-called gods of Egypt, showing that, that in fact, Yahweh is the one true God. All these other gods, right, are nothing more than demons or man-made contrivances. Pharaoh himself being deified, right, um, he loses his first son. He can't even protect his first son, what does God do? He brings Israel, who he refers to in Exodus as his first son, out of the land. So God has power that Pharaoh does not. Who is God? God is God. Yahweh is God, not the gods of Egypt. So we're reminded right out of the gate, just by the mention of what God has done for them, by taking them out of Egypt, of God's power and might and redeeming, applying that and redeeming his people. That's important. Why? Because they are on the edge of going into the land. The last time they were on the edge of going into the land, they had just experienced all these realities and yet said, listen, we can't trust God to take us into the land. These people in the land are powerful. So you see, they need to be reminded of this before they go into the land, right? And so we need to be reminded of that regularly too. That doesn't mean a health and wealth, you know, hey, I'm experiencing difficulty, I'm gonna pray for it and God's gonna do exactly what I'm asking. Uh, he will in the sense that he's gonna build his kingdom and that's ultimately what every Christian is asking when they pray. We just don't know exactly what that's gonna look like in every circumstance how all the pieces are going to fit together. So we know God will answer, but, but it's, it's, so I'm saying don't take the wrong application from his might and power in redeeming, but don't not apply it either. God is redeeming his people and he has all the might to do it and he will do it. And so we need to pray with confidence. We need to trust the Lord too. Okay, second lesson is that the people must be faithful, trusting God. I just mentioned the fact that there are 40 years covered here and there are 40 different stops um, so why, why, why were there uh, 40 years? Why didn't they just go into the land? It's one year for every day they spied out the land. Okay, yes. No yes, and, and so what? So they spy out the land 40, 40 days, and they're going to have to wander 40 years, but what happened when they spied out the land? Why, why, why can't they just go in? They refused to go. They refused to go. They did not believe God's promises. They did not believe God's power. They doubted. And they went, they rebelled. That's, I mean, that's basically what they, what we can say, right? They rebelled against God. And all the people who had to die, rebelled. That's right. right. And so that whole generation is going to die off. So we talked about God's faithfulness. Uh, he is faithful in the promises, including discipline, when his people disobey and disregard and rebel. And so we see that he, he in fact, is faithful to that promise. But the, the, um, the reminder then here is uh, don't rebel. You're about to go into the land, don't rebel, and that's going to apply to us as well. But um, you'll notice uh, in, in Numbers 33, 38 through 39, even Aaron is going to die, or he did die actually. And Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there. So this is he's rehashing something from earlier in Numbers. In the 40th year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month, and Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. 
So this new generation is being warned through this travel log, and so are we. Um, you'll remember 1 Corinthians 10. You might flip there real quick if you are relatively quick at flipping. So 1 Corinthians 10, I'm just going to read a couple verses out of here. Verse, uh, verses 1 through 6, although I probably won't read all of that. So this is what he says um, <clears throat> in chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. So what's he talking about? Them being brought out of Egypt, right? So he's talking about that generation. He goes on, talks about they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. Talks about the rock who ultimately was Christ. So there's a shadow in what's happening to them of Christ who is the substance. Look at verse six. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So part of what I'm saying is in in this section, one of the looking back reminders is don't be like the generation before you. Do not rebel. I'm about to lead you into the land. But what I'm saying is the same application is true for us, right? We must trust the Lord in our generation. Again, we're different. We're not Israel. I get that. We're not a nation. We're the church, but we are to learn from this, and we're told that in the New Testament. Um, look, look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test. And then he talks about how some of them were destroyed by serpents. You remember that with the bronze serpent. Um, verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, so here is the application in light of all this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is the calling to us. We look back on what happened to Israel and maybe even look back on your own life and times you were foolish and God disciplined you. We ought to learn from all these things, right? Um, and we ought to be on guard because spiritual warfare is nonstop. It doesn't take a break. It's not like when you go home and shut the garage, everything is safe now, right? The world, the flesh, the devil are all still issues. And so we need to, we need to take heed lest we fall. We need to be reminded by the failings of previous generations and by our own previous failings to stand firm. Well, the third lesson here is hope for the future. Uh, look down at verses 48 through 49. And they set out from the mountains of Abarim and came in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshmoth as far as Abel Shatim in the plains of Moab. So my, my point is they are now, having gone through all this, we have a new generation and they are camped right outside the door, so to speak, of the promised land. So what does that remind us of? Hope looking forward. God is, is fulfilling his promises and he will fulfill his promises. He's, that's what he's about to do. Uh, and that really has been the main theme of Numbers is God's faithfulness to his promises. Um, so we need to think about God's faithfulness. I've already mentioned this, but um, we, so here's a couple uh, applications for us. Um, well, let, me, let me read again from 1 Corinthians 10. I realize you may, may not be there. You may have already went back to Numbers 33. I'm just going to read two verses verses 13 and 14. So right after what I just read earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, he says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. One thing to recognize there is the way of escape is not necessarily removing the temptation fully, is it? It's you'll be able to endure it. God gives you strength to persevere and face it. Now, there are times where you need to flee, like physically flee, right? I mean, that's true. Um, but, but what I want to point out here is we recognize temptation is always a danger. So as we look forward to future hope, we, we need to think of God's faithfulness in the past and where he's brought us and where he's going to bring us so that we have hope. That's going to help us endure temptation. We have to remember where God is taking us. So we need to, we need to think um, God is faithful in disciplining. So when I am tempted to disobey, thinking of God's past discipline and promises of future discipline should help me persevere. That, that gives me hope. Uh, when I'm tempted to despair because the culture seems corrupt, my own heart seems corrupt, situations seem hard, uh, well, hey, though the outer man is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. That's in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, so there, we need to have um, hope which should drive us forward in faithfulness to God. In other words, God's faithfulness, who he is, what he's promised, means we are faithful. We are trusting in what God says, right? So th- that's basically the lessons I think they take from looking backwards. Now we need to look forwards. In light of all these things, and, and these people, they are on the verge of the land, and you'll remember there was a failure to go in last time. So now they need to look ahead and get ready for going into the land. So he's going to give them instructions that apply to what's going to happen um, as they move to, to take over this land. So looking ahead, we have uh, three different things here. You'll remember that we've kind of said this has been a part of the storyline is uh, even from Genesis there's always been this looking for God's people in God's place, in God's presence, which includes his rule, right? Because he rules right and good over his people. That's really kind of been the main storyline in a lot of ways throughout the Bible. And we, we see those three things really addressed here as they get ready to go in the land. They need some instruction because they're going to be his people in his place with his presence among them. So they need some instructions to prepare for that. Um, And so to some degree, this is review, but it also is, there's a new reality to it because they're right outside the land. The next major event to happen is going into the land, right? That's, uh, well, Moses is going to die, but the next thing is going to be to go into the land, right? So let's look at these things real quick. First, let's talk about people. Let me ask you this question. Uh, I kind of already said this earlier, but uh, I said it quickly, so maybe you don't remember, and we'll we'll take a pop quiz here. why did God redeem Israel out of Egypt? What are some reasons? And I, I have one particular reason, but there, there are multiple reasons, so don't feel like you have to just get the one I haven't hit my head. What are some reasons God redeems them out of Egypt? Promised it. What was that? He promised it. Okay, so he promised it. And, and he, he promised it back to Abraham. Uh, is it Genesis 15 or 17? One of those places, he even says... Your future generations of your offspring, which haven't even been born yet, I mean, I don't even think he has an heir at that point yet, right? And they're going to end up in Egypt, and they're going to be enslaved for over 400 years, right? And then I'm going to bring them to the land. So, yeah. Did you have something? Uh, I guess it, it, he was, uh, yeah, yeah God, God promised it, and he also, um, they, they were in bondage. Yeah. Bondage to the, to, uh, to the Egyptians. That's right. Their cry and... So yeah, so, so God, God hears their cry and responds to that like he promised he would do, right? So we see his sovereignty and uh, their responsibility to cry out. We, um, when we think about his, uh, wh- so why, 
So yes, he brings them out because they're enslaved. Why, why does he want to bring them out from being enslaved? I mean, because God can surely still do things while they're enslaved. Show his power, receive glory. Yeah, he's going to receive glory. He's going to show his power. And he's going to do that over the Egyptians. That's right. Yeah. He also judged their gods. Yeah. Yep, so he's going to judge the, go the false gods, right? <laughs> Moses always tells Pharaoh, let my people go worship. Yes. That's right. Yes. And so, and so that's the one I'm looking for here. All those things we just said are true, and they all play into the reason God's going to do it is because he's going to be glorified. It means over, the, over all these false gods, even in the eyes of these pagans, he's going to receive glory. It's going to be glory through judgment, right? And so we're constantly reminded again through the Bible, just like we said, God's people, God's place, God's presence. Another theme you see over and over again, and I would say one of the main themes is God is glorified in judging his enemies and redeeming his people. And those two things have to go together. So I understand that we, we, um, we have a certain sense of sympathy for the perishing world around us, and we should, and that should drive us to missions and to sharing the gospel, because that is on the heart of God as well. But we, we don't want to pretend to be more compassionate than God in the sense that judgment is part of the way God's going to be glorified. He is holy, and it is right and good that he will judge, right? Um, so anyway, we need to keep that in mind. But okay, so the point is, he brings them out. He commands Pharaoh to let them go so that they might serve and worship him. This idea appears in Exodus uh, 423, 7.16, 8.1, 8.20, 9.1, 9.13, 10.3, and 10.7 through 8. Uh, and my point is, over and over and over again, he says, this is the reason I'm bringing you out of Egypt, right? He's going to get glory over the Egyptian gods, and his people are going to worship him. They're going to serve him. Uh, they're going to be a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19.6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then think about the laws he gives them. The first ones all deal with their relationship to glorifying God directly in worship. Right? You have no other gods before me. You shall not make uh, any idols and bow down to them. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Right? Um, so, God's people must be God's people. That's the point. They must be different than the nations around them. So when we talk about what are these instructions going to be about, they're going to be about God's people looking like God's people. Um, and, and then connected to that too, I'm going to, I'll just remind you one more thing. God said that passage I referenced in Genesis 15, he says this to Abraham, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, your, your people later, shall come back here to the promised land, Canaan, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So when giving them the land, they're going to need to look like his people. They'll need to be holy. And they're going to, part of that holiness is God's going to use them as an instrument to judge the wicked Canaanites that are living there. And they have to, another part of that is because if they're going to stay holy, these people are going to be an influence on them and they can't be. And if God's presence, we're going to see later, is going to be in the land, this idolatry cannot go unchecked either. Because there's something very unique going here, right? Now, we don't live in a, in, a new, in a covenant where we are a nation to God, but the church is the people of God. And so there ought not be any idolatry within the church. And yes, we also argue against idolatry in our nation as much as we can, right? That's true too. Um, but, but we certainly live that way as his people. So the point is he's getting ready to do what he promised and Israel must remain a holy nation. They must remove idolatry from the land and they will be used to remove the wicked Canaanites from the land. Look at Numbers 33, 50 through 56. So that was a lot of introduction, but here's the verse I was commenting on the whole time. 
the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And he goes on, talks some more about the land. And then in verse 55, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So God shows no partiality. If his people engage in idolatry, they too will be judged. And guess what? That happens later. So God is just, and his justice doesn't change based on the person he's dealing with, right? Now, he's also merciful, and he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Because um, even for us, he has mercy on us, but it's not because he just decided all of a sudden to overlook everything we did. Right? Justice is meted out because Jesus takes our place as our substitute. He's the willing substitute for us. So, so God can therefore be just and justify us. But the point is, they need to be a holy people. God's people must be a holy people. So they are reminded when you go into the land, you've got to deal with these Canaanites and you've got to deal with all the idol worship. If you don't, they're going to be a barb in your eye and side and, it's going to be, and you're going to end up engaging in idol worship and then I will judge you. So he's giving them this warning. When they, they get ready to go in, you've got to deal with the Canaanites, you've got to deal with idolatry, right? So that obviously applies to us in our own lives as a church and as individual Christians. Um, so we need to root out idolatry in our own lives for sure. Uh, it is interesting, I mean, a lot, you can really see a lot of parallels to numbers and just the Christian life in general, right? I mean, you kind of almost make it like a Pilgrim's Progress thing, although it's not, I mean, it's not allegory, this is real history. But I, I, and I think the warrant for that is 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says it's still an, an example for you. He doesn't say it's just a made-up story and a fable. No, this is 100% history. This is exactly how God is bringing his plan of redemption into reality. But it also is a parallel to what it looks like for you in the new covenant and your struggles against idolatry and immorality and, all the, and temptation. Right? Okay. So let's talk about place. That's the next thing. Place. The borders of the land are laid out. Look at chapter 34, verse 1. Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan as defined by its borders. And uh, up until this point, we haven't actually been given what the borders are going to be. So he's about to give the borders. Your south side shall be from the wilderness of Zin alongside Edom and your southern border shall run from the end of the salt sea on the east. Okay, I'm not going to keep reading all these things. I have a map up here which you probably cannot see unless you're in the front row. So hey, plug for sitting in the front row next time. Uh, if you have an ESV study Bible, it's page 320. If you have any study Bible, it probably has a map that would be similar to this. So this green area is going to be uh, generally what the outline of the promised land is going to be. And I just show you that because that is taking the place of me reading all these places which I don't think would help you anyway, because if you're like me, you don't know the geography, you don't know. In fact, I mean, it's just hard to pinpoint a lot of these ancient places. Um, so anyway, maybe that just gives you a visual instead of reading all these verses. But he goes on and lays out all these places. Um, he also points out here uh, <clears throat> that, well, let me back up something, say something about the, these places. Uh, I'm not reading this, but I don't want you to mistake it that for saying there's nothing important happening here. Uh, we kind of get a little bored reading stuff like this. Um, and, I, and I understand that, right? I mean, because this is, you're not about to go into this land. These people are about to go in this land and they're being told what it's going to look like. 
So this is super exciting. They're being told, okay, so God has made these promises. Now they're being given physical description of what the place is going to be. Right? It's like, it's like someone telling you, listen, you know, you, you want to, you've been given a brand new home. And you don't know what that looks like. I mean, it could be a tiny house. Some of you might be into that. You may be loving that. I would not. Um, you know, but the, he's, he's laying out what it's going to look like. And so, but then when they start telling you what it looks like, you're paying attention, right? Because that's important to you. And so they're, they're paying attention. And this is even more than that because this is, God has called them to this place to be his people and experience his presence and worship him. This is a big deal. For us then, I would say, you know, one application is, do we think often about our inheritance? The New Testament speaks of our inheritance, the inheritance we have in Christ. Ephesians speaks of this. Colossians talks about it. Um, the, uh, the millennial kingdom that's going to come for uh, a time when God fulfills his promises to remaining to Israel. He's gonna, he's gonna, there's going to be a remnant that's going to be saved, right? There's people. Um, there'll, there'll be uh, people of God living through this millennial kingdom. We'll, those of us who have died and went to be with the Lord will be in his presence. Then there'll be a new heavens and a new earth that will come at the end of all this. And that is our everlasting inheritance. And what's at the center of all this? God himself. Uh, there's a lot to reflect on here. And, and Christians who have went before us spent a lot of time reflecting on heaven and on the future. And I think we do not. I say I think we do not. I mean, I know I don't do it as much. I've tried to get better at that. I've, in fact, I put in my prayer list. I have a list of things now that I've slowly been accumulating from other people who've helped me, but just thinking on my own, of certain things about heaven and about our inheritance to be thankful about. So that you pr- I pray for one of those a day um, as a reminder of this is, this is an inheritance for me and for God's people. So, I mean, you don't have to do exactly that, but somehow find ways to reflect on the inheritance that is yours in Christ and rejoice in that. So anyway, he tells them this, and, and this is instruction for them because it's important. They need to know the boundaries. And he also tells them, here's the people who are going to be involved in dividing up the land. And he calls specific leaders from each tribe that are going to be involved in the delegation of dividing up the land. Uh, it's going to happen, I think it happens by lot, if I remember correctly, but these people are going to be involved in that, okay? And so he's going to call out who's going to be involved in that. Um, I'm not going to read all their names, but you can see that in Numbers 34, uh, 16 through following. Uh, uh, Joshua's listed there. He's going to be, be heading that up as well as the priest Eleazar. Two tribes are not listed, Reuben and Gad. Why are they not listed? Does anyone know? Yeah, they've already been assigned their, their, some land on the Transjordan, right? This side over here, they've been assigned some area because they asked for it. Um, and Doug talked about that in the, I think it was last session. Am I right about that? Yeah. There was another, like half the tribe of Manasseh, Manasseh. was over there yep. too. Yep. So, and Manasseh is conf- kind of confusing too because Manasseh is actually the tribe of Joseph. And, we, and it divides up. So, and then we have Manasseh and Ephraim, right? Am I right about that? And then, and then Manasseh, you have on one side, and then I think they get some on the other side too. So anyway, yeah, yeah. You know, Peggy, you said something really um, thinking about how God gives uh, important information about the land. Yeah. And about the things that reminded me of Jesus in John 14, to the disciples. He says, "I'm telling you this now." So you believe more later. Yeah. And so you have these two important times that believers are moving forward yeah. with divine foretelling about I'm giving you this so you'll believe more. Yeah. And there's a parallel between really talking about itself. Yeah. You know, I thought that was very cool. That's a good connection, yeah. So it's John 14. 
yeah, yeah, you kind of see this um, at these key moments of looking ahead and God preparing his people for what's going to come by giving them information. Yeah. It's really different than you see in the old Wild West movies <laughs> where you're at the border of Kansas or Oklahoma and at 6 a.m. they fire the gun and everybody runs in and gets what they want. Yeah. It's just completely the other. That's right, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's going to be order here because God is, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, so that's good. Okay, so they're going to go into the land. Um, they're going to have this place that God has promised. Now God's presence. Uh, he gives instruction on uh, dispersing the Levites, dealing with um, the manslayer. So you might be thinking, what does that have to do with God's presence? Just hang with me. Um, I, I think we see some of this pointed out here. So the, the first thing he does is he gives some places for the Levites to live. Uh, you'll remember, uh, well, let me, let me read this first of all. Um, look at verses one through three of chapter 35. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho saying, command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of their inheritance of the possession uh, as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for all their beasts. Now look at verse seven. All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. Okay, why do the Levites need to be given cities? Do you want to remember? They are not given any inheritance per se, right? So the reason is why um, Numbers 18.20 says, The Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And you'll remember the, the Levites really, they represent Israel as a whole as belonging to God. Kind of like the way the sacrifice, the burnt offering would represent the person saying, like, I, I want to belong fully to you, God fully consumed for you, fully in your presence. That's what I want. Um, the Levites were, and so this is why like uh, when they numbered them up early on, they had these kind of how many people versus how many Levites do we have? And they had to pay extra and above based on the, the lack of number of Levites. You know what I'm saying? The point is they represent them. And so I guess what I'm saying is all of this stuff, we're already kind of seeing that the land, it is a very real, tangible, and important gift in the old covenant to them. But even there, the bigger picture is God himself is to be the inheritance of his people, right? And the land to some degree pictures that, but the Levites certainly picture that because they're going to live in an agri agricultural society where they're just, they're kind of living based on gifted land to them. Because why? Because they're to show that the Lord is their inheritance, which again is supposed to signify that all the people of Israel are saying, yes, Lord, you are our inheritance. We want you more than anything. This land you've given us in your presence reminds us that we have a place before you to live among you and your people. Um, so that's why they're not really given any inheritance here. Um, cities, by the way, don't overread that. It's probably more like small hamlets and towns. There weren't really going to be a ton of huge cities in Israel anyway. Um, so that's just what's going on there. Now, these, um, where were these cities? Well, they're supposed to be spread out through the, the things. That, so there's 48 cities. Uh, Wenham points out in his commentary, this makes up less than 1% of all the land in Israel. So they don't have a lot of area. Um, but they are going to be dispersed. They're going to be dispersed. And there's 48 cities because they're going to be throughout all the tribes of Israel. Now, why are they going to be throughout all the tribes of Israel? Well, what was their job? It was to teach the people God's ways and to distinguish between the holy and the unholy and the profane, or sorry, the, the profane and the holy, the clean and the unclean. That was what they were to do. Um, <clears throat> Leviticus 10 describes it this way. 
chapter 10, verse 10, you are talking to the Levites, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Um, <clears throat> so they are to function that way. Um, and so why do they need to be spread out? Well, all the people need to know God's ways wherever they're living in Israel, right? And if God's presence is among all the people, they have to deal with this clean and unclean stuff, this life and death realm stuff, because God is a God of life. And if their kingdom is going to picture life, they've got to deal with the issues God has said to deal with. Because a lot of those things deal with blood, certain animals that we see that somehow usually are tied to death. Um, so we see that God is pointing out this distinction needs to be kept and the Levites are going to help keep it. Um, so let's see. Let's keep looking here. Okay, so that's one reason that we see God's presence. He's going to have Levites everywhere to remind the people of his presence. Also tied to that and tied to this idea of clean and unclean and blood and all this other stuff is they're going to have to deal with practical issues of murder and manslaughter, which is one of the biggest ways uncleanness and unholiness can enter the land. In other words, God takes it very seriously when somebody kills somebody else. And, th and so when they're going into the land and God is present in the land, this is one of the biggies that they've got to deal with to deal with holiness and unholiness, cleanness and uncleanness. So he's going to make these cities of refuge that are Levite cities, but there's six of them that are going to be designated as cities of refuge that deal with when somebody kills somebody and it's supposed to be when they unintentionally do it, they flee to this place. But guilty people usually don't just come up and say, hey, I'm guilty. So they're going to flee to it too. And so these cities are going to be places where impartial trials are going to be able to happen. And they're going to be able to root out the blood guilt that would otherwise profane the land. And the reason I say this deals with God's presence is because, let me see. Uh, look down at Numbers 35, 33 through 34. So he gets done talking about these cities and, and all this manslaughter and murder stuff. And he says in verse 33, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. And then Wenham makes this comment. He says, Canaan is more than the promised land. It is the holy land sanctified by the presence of God living among his people. It is therefore of the utmost importance to keep this land pure, especially from the most potent pollutant of bloodshed. So we see that this is, this is what we're talking about God's presence here. Uh, these cities of refuge do deal with the fact that God is present among his people. This is why it's such a big deal. And just practically, if you don't deal with murder and manslaughter, you're going to have issues, right? Um, so you got to deal with those things. Um, so chapter th 35, verse 15, these six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and the sojourner among them that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. So they have to be accessible. They get divided up throughout the area uh, of the land. There's three on the Transjordan, three on the other side. Um, these people need a trial, and they need it to be impartial. The uh, Bible takes murder seriously. We've seen that throughout, beginning in Genesis 9, especially. Even earlier than that, you see God dealing with the issue of Cain and Abel. Uh, but Genesis 9 specifically says government has the role to uh, take the life of those who will take the life of the innocent. Right? That is, that is the fitting recompense um, to deal with that. And so we see that in Genesis 9. Um, Numbers has got to focus on the practicalities, though. We have murder and we have manslaughter. Chapter, verses 16 through 21 deal with murder. 
death penalty is required. You cannot buy your way out of it. Um, and then manslaughter, verses 22 through 29. This would be um, a killing uh, or death that takes place, but the other person, they are still culpable because what they did was not thoughtful, right, safe, but it wasn't an intention to murder somebody. It could even be as described as sometimes there could be a fight that might erupt, and in the fight, someone gets killed. That's different than premeditated, you plan to kill somebody, right? And so it goes through descriptions of how they might interpret the difference between those two settings and situations. Uh, and then this guy, manslaughter, it's not murder, I mean, it's not uh, death penalty, but it's you have to stay in the city of refuge. If you are convicted of manslaughter, you have to stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Now, this passage does not make explicit this connection that I'm about to make, but I think this is probably what's going on there. Um, if you have a different uh, solution, come up and tell me afterwards. I, I'm open to correction. But I, I think it probably is, there's this idea that what you did was, um, was significant. So you're kind of on this almost like house arrest. You stay in this area. Um, but when the high priest dies, in some sense, atonement has then finally been made for, for the death that happened. Even though it was unintentional, atonement still needs to be made because what you did was either reckless or not thoughtful. It was not safe. Something that led to the death of an innocent person. And, um, and so to some degree, it's kind of like, hey, it's in God's sovereignty. It's like um, what you did was reckless and it was kind of in some degrees an accident. Well, now you're waiting for this death of the priest that you can't control. It's kind of an accident type thing. And whenever he dies, then you can finally leave the area. Uh, the point is there are different punishments, but blood guilt has to be dealt with. Uh, lest it profane the land, because God is there. Numbers 35, 33 through 34. Um, and remember, people are made in the image of God. That's one of the reasons this is so huge, right? Okay, so now we come to the last chapter. We're going to wrap it up here. Last chapter, 36. A faithful people believing God's promises. So this is still looking ahead, but I, I made it its own section because it really, it wraps up this whole section. It bookends a previous section that we've already seen. Back in chapter, I think it's 27, we meet some daughters of Zelophehad. Remember them? And they say, look, our dad has died. In fact, I probably could read this for you. Um, uh, chapter 36, verses two through three. They said, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for an inheritance by lot to the people of Israel. So they're basically saying, look, you just said we're gonna get the land. We believe God is gonna do this. We're not in the land yet all the way, but we believe God. So there's faithfulness here. We believe this is going to happen. So there's a practical issue. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. So you remember that. These, these women, they come and they say, look, our dad died. We have no brothers. His name is going to be erased. He won't have a place in the land. That's a big deal. It's kind of like saying you don't have a place among God's presence and God's people, right? So, so they're saying, can we, as his daughters, receive the land rather than it going to uncles and other people who'd be outside of the direct lineage of our father? Okay, um, and, they, and they say yes, but now the issue arises of, uh, well, now they, they want to go to the chapel and they want to get married. So this is now, now a new twist is entered. So um, the, the, these fellow leaders of, of this, their tribe says, well, what happens if they marry someone in another tribe? The land will then go to that other tribe and that's going to be a problem. So again, this doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but the, keep in mind, this pictures for us in the new covenant our place among God's presence with God's people. So that's why one of the biggest judgments in the old covenant is your name will be blotted out. Your name will be removed from the land. Think about like Ahab and Jezebel and things like that. Why is it such a big deal that Ahab tries to steal land from name, is it name, what's the guy's name? Naboth? Why is that such a big deal? To us, it just seems like he's a big bully. It is way more than that. 
He's trying to take away something that is the inheritance of this man in the people of God. Now, he doesn't intend it for that way. He's just being greedy and selfish. But the reason it's not, it's a bigger deal than selfishness is because of that. The reason God says to some of these wicked people is, I'm going to wipe your name out. You're going to have no remembrance. It's because it's essentially saying, like, you are not among the people of God. That's, that's a big deal, right? Um, so so the, what are they going to do? Verse 3, if they marry any of the sons of the other tribes, the people of Israel, their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of that tribe into which they marry. So Moses consults the Lord, and the Lord answers. Look down at verse 6. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of their tribe, of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. That's the goal, verse 7. It will stay in each tribe. What do these women do? Look down at verse 10. The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. How refreshing. We've been through a whole book of people constantly (laughs) grumbling, complaining, and rebelling against everything God said through Moses. And here we have, so why is this significant at the end? We have a new generation that's arisen. God is about to take them into the land. They're believing they're going to get the land. That's why they care about the inheritance. Listen, if, you don't really, if you're looking at the land, you're still thinking, I don't know. There's some big inhabitants. I don't know this is going to work out. You're not spending your time thinking about all these legal formalities, right? The reason they're thinking about this is because they're faithful. They're trusting God. They care. Uh, and then they're ready to obey, They're ready to do what God says. Even in the most significant area of their life, to some degree, outside of their walk with God, marriage, right? I mean, how often are we unwilling to to bend the knee to what Christ says in a choice of a marriage partner or so many other things because it just seems burdensome? No, this is good for us to walk in God's ways. And faithfulness shows that by submitting to God's will. And these women end up married. I'm gonna assume they are happily married to other people in their clan, So that is how we end. And the other reason we get this at the end, so that's one reason. We end with faithfulness and it is so refreshing at the end of the book of Numbers. Uh, We have these women and then the tribal leaders there as an example of faithfulness of the whole nation. Um, But also because I said this bookends what happened in in Numbers 27. Um, I think it was 27. But anyway, so uh, that story with with those daughters of Lofahad, right after that, we're told one more thing. We're told that Moses is not going to enter the, well, we already know he's not going to enter the land. But God says, you're going to go up on the mountain, you'll see the land, and then you will die. And Joshua is going to lead the people into the land. So this sets us up for the sequel to Numbers, which is Deuteronomy. Because it calls back to mind, if we, if you, I know it's been several weeks, but if you had been just reading through Numbers, I think you would have easily made that connection. The first audience would have easily made that connection. Okay, we just bookended this, we finished this out. Oh, you know what? Right at the end of the last time, we said, heard Moses is going to die. Moses is still around. They're about to go into the land to be continued, Right? Moses is going to come in Deuteronomy. He's going to give a series of sermons. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, he dies and the people are then ready to go into the land. So that's what ends up happening at the end of this book. Final verse, Numbers 36, 13. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. The Lord has brought the people from Egypt to the edge of the promised land. He's given them instructions and they are ready to enter the land. Wenham says this, These laws, the ones we just read, are more than pure legal enactments. They are implicit promises. God is in effect pledging that he will give his people victory over their enemies, a huge land made holy by the dwelling of the Levites and God himself 
within it. So that's where we're at in the storyline. Numbers has brought us forward in the storyline. Uh, it has not brought us all the way through it. The book of Deuteronomy will take us further. It will not take us all the way through it. The fullness of all of it won't be here until Jesus returns. That's what we're looking for in the fullness. But we, nevertheless, we see the story advancing and we see shadows of the need for Christ who will one day come as the good shepherd of God's people. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for um, the truth you've given us. We pray that we'd have hearts that are not rebellious. That we'd have hearts that are ready to obey you. Even, even where we have things we really want or other things that we may be tempted to make idols out of, God. Good, good things, even, that we may make idols out of. Would you help us to be faithful, to be trusting you, that you really are our treasure, our inheritance, that you have laid up inheritance for us in the heavenlies that are beyond all we could think or imagine and that you are good in all that you command, and that all these things are intended to make us more like Christ. So would you give us hearts like that? We pray this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.